I love that song. We don't sing a lot of songs directed to the Holy Spirit. We, if anything, we kind of speak of the Holy Spirit to come and do something for me. We don't really just sit and appreciate the gift of dwelling and having the Holy Spirit and worshiping the Spirit. I love, love that song. Good morning, family. It's so great to be with you guys today. Visitors, thank you for joining us. If you have any questions about 4th Avenue, how to get plugged in, we would love to share with you how to do that. This is an awesome, loving family, and we will love to love your family. And I want to say something really exciting. Cody Rayburn is going to get baptized today. Yeah, that's, that's very exciting. And that's going to happen right after service. So if you want to hang around and see that, you can. And that's going to be happening right here. Water, I hope, is nice. <laughs> but um, it's an awesome, awesome day anytime someone decides to give their life over to Jesus. And Wednesday nights, we're continuing with our programming for Witness. We've been hearing wonderful stories of God's power, God's deliverance, God's partnership, God's comforting, so many amazing things in, in our lives. So I encourage you to join us on Wednesday nights at 6.30. So today we're going to be continuing the series that we started last week called Church on Fire. We're looking at what spirit-empowered people of God did in the first century as they took the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to all the nations as it spread like wildfire. Today, we're going to be in Acts 2. And I would argue Acts 2 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. I feel like I've said that a lot up here. I feel like I've said this is one of the most important scriptures. But this one really is one of the most important scriptures in the whole Bible because there's a lot of firsts happening here. The, this is the conception. This is the beginning of the church. This is... The first moments whenever the Spirit of God falls on people and is permanently dwelling with them, changing the way that we live forever. This is the first kind of traditional gospel sermon preached to a big crowd, right? There's, there's a lot of firsts that are really, really beautiful here. And I'm not sure if you all know this, but different Christian denominations have certain emphases. They have certain texts that we like to gravitate towards. And as people who maybe are in the background of the Church of Christ, you know, you know what our texts of preference are. You know the things that we like to go to. One of them is Acts 2.38. That's a very important scripture in Churches of Christ for good reason. It is a very important scripture. What's interesting is another group of, another stream of Christianity, charismatic groups, more Pentecostal groups, they also love Acts 2. That's one of the verses that they really emphasize and point to. And I think it's really important to Look at different people's perspectives, because I think we can learn so much from one another, right? And there is so much happening in Acts 2. There are things that we can learn from a more charismatic perspective, things that we've been taught in Churches of Christ, and things that, you know, I'm not saying all denomination distinctive stuff is what we're going to be focusing on. There's so much here in Acts 2, so much that is going to be helpful for us in, in helping be a church on fire. So we're going to get right into it. In Acts 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, probably praying together as we saw in Acts 1. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So we're going to break this down a little bit. Let's start with Passover. Or not Passover, Pentecost. That's one of the first words that is mentioned in this text. And Pentecost, I mean, that's a word we don't throw around a ton. But this was a celebration, a Jewish celebration. It wasn't called Pentecost at the time. It was called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. But it happened 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, which was essentially Easter Sunday. It was the day after the Sabbath of Passover, which that's really cool, right? Easter being on the day of the Feast of First Fruits, it gives even more significance and meaning to Jesus being raised, the firstborn of all creation, right? So 50 days after that, which that's close to seven full weeks, seven times seven for a Jew is completeness, right? So you can see that this is a day that they were celebrating. It's called the Feast of Weeks because it was seven weeks after that day. So there's a massive pilgrimage coming to Jerusalem from Jews all over the world. And that's what creates this special moment here for Pentecost. Kind of like what a Main Street festival would. But nonetheless, there were tons of Jewish pilgrims here. And during this festival, all the disciples joined together in prayer. There was this violent rushing wind that came and filled the room. And the presence of the glory of God, that, that theme, that idea is something that's so present, so rich in scripture. It happens so many places in the Old Testament about this, the presence of God or the glory of God filling the temple or the tabernacle or a specific place or room. And specifically thinking about the wind, it makes me think of Ezekiel. There's this vision in Ezekiel, the prophet of God, he has this vision where there's this valley of dry bones. And God breathes life into this valley, and the bones come to life. That's kind of what's happening at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is falling and coming into this room, but more than just coming into this room, the Spirit of God, the presence of God, is now dwelling inside of us on an individual level. This is changing everything. And then tongues of fire rested on all of them, which is just a Jewish expression of fire or flames. And tongues of fire is very deliberate language here because very soon after this, they're going to be speaking in different tongues. This also demonstrates God's presence. Fire demonstrates God's presence as well. Thinking about the burning bush with Moses. Thinking about on Mount Sinai when the Lord descends upon Mount Sinai in fire. And that's when Moses sees Yahweh and he's given the law for the first time. Or if you look at the tabernacle in Exodus 40, it talks about there being a pillar of fire over it at night that's kind of the illuminating presence of God so the rushing wind the flames resting on them the spirit filling them this is all the fulfillment of scripture this is all the fulfillment of God's promises it was fulfilling also what Jesus promised them a baptism of spirit and fire it's happening right here and this is enabling them to speak in other tongues which for Luke is fulfilling the global mission of the church in verse 5 it says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So that's a little hyperbolic. Luke knows that there are other nations that he does not mention in this. But he is saying that all kinds of people are gathered right here. Kind of illustrating the global nature of what's about to happen. 
And when they heard this sound, the sound of the wind, and also I imagine the sound of a lot of people speaking in different tongues, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears our own native language? And then it goes on, I'm not going to try to butcher <laughs> all of these different names of nations, goes on to list a bunch of nations that are there, and they all have significance, and if I really broke it down, it'd take a while to explain it all, so we're going to just whoop, whoop, scoot past that, uh, down to verse 11, and they say, all these people from all nations are gathered together, they say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So here in Acts, the function of tongues was that as they were speaking, people from all over were understanding what they were saying in their own native mother tongue. And Galileans should not have known all of those languages, but yet they understood them in that way. Now, how Paul speaks of tongues in 1 Corinthians is a little bit different, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time getting into that today, because what's happening in that context, there are people speaking in tongues that are causing massive disruptions in the church, and he is saying, he's endorsing speaking in tongues in a more private and devotional manner. He himself speaks in tongues, but if it doesn't have a spiritual interpretation accompanied with it, then it became sort of divisive for that church specifically. I say all this to say, I'm not a cessationist. I believe that the Spirit of God still works and moves in ways that don't make sense to us. And at the same time, I say that, I also believe it is not necessary for every person to speak in tongues in order for them to have the Holy Spirit. I think scripture is very clear that it is a gift among other gifts. But again, not going to get into the weeds of that. We're looking specifically in Acts today. In Acts, the gift is miraculous because Galileans who don't know other tongues are speaking in such ways where people from all over the world are understanding it in their own native language. So whenever Jesus told them that their mission would start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea and Samaria, and then go to the ends of the earth, that's happening right now, right here in front of them at Pentecost. They are all in Jerusalem, and people are hearing the good news of Jesus in their own language, which that to me illustrates something very clear, that God... <laughs> loves all people and all nations and meets cultures and people where they are with the gospel. Which, that's a lot of missionaries, whenever they go over to the other countries, they are learning the culture, they're learning the language, sometimes often translating scripture into their own languages so that they can understand God in the ways that make the most sense to them while not compromising gospel truths, right? It's really, really an amazing thing that many other religions don't do. They say, you have to conform to our culture and our language. God meets people where they are. And this day is kind of the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Because what's happening there, everybody is speaking a common language. But they're trying to build this massive tower. But they're trying to make their own names great in doing that. So God confuses them by making them speak different tongues so they don't understand each other. What's happening here at Pentecost is kind of the opposite. People are all able to communicate with one another. They're able to talk with one another as the Spirit is filling up people's lives. But this time it's to make God's name great. So he is, he is blessing what is happening here. 
And then in verse 12, it says, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? I think we can ask a similar question today. What does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for us as a church? Let's start with a question before that, though. We've got to go a little bit more foundationally. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? If you spend any time looking at the early creeds of the church, it's really funny, honestly. They spend a good amount of time talking about the Father, spend a lot of time talking about the Son, and then with the Holy Spirit, it's kind of just like, eh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, moving on. They don't really include a lot of details with the Holy Spirit, partially because the Spirit of God is really mysterious, but also is oftentimes the most neglected person in the Trinity. Here's a little Theology 101 about the Holy Spirit. God is one. We have one God. But God is three persons with the same divine substance or essence. And the Holy Spirit is one of those persons. And I talked about the Trinity in a previous sermon, so if you really want to hear more about that, just go find it on our website. But the Holy Spirit is God. In the same way that the Son and the Father is God, equally worthy of worship. The Holy Spirit is the Lord along with Father and Son. And there are scriptures that I believe support all of this. Also, the Holy Spirit has been a part of the whole story from the very beginning. The opening pages of the Bible is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, helping in the creative process and breathing life into all things. And another thing, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is not an impersonal force but personal and relational. What's really interesting is in Hebrew, the word for spirit is feminine. In, in Greek, it is neuter, and that is neither male nor female. In Latin, it is male. So there's that mystery with the spirit. I normally, I use he when I talk about the Holy Spirit because the ancient streams of faith in Christianity have, that's been the pronoun to use for the Holy Spirit. But I want to be very clear, the Holy Spirit is not a man. Spirit is spirit. And then also the name Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is both the name and also a descriptor of Holy Spirit's role. Scripture says, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Therefore, I believe it is perfectly acceptable to just say Holy Spirit instead of saying the Holy Spirit all the time. And for some of you, that might feel a little foreign or a little odd, and it did for me for a while, too. But I don't go around talking with Abby and say the Abby all the time. I call her her name. However, simultaneously, Holy Spirit is a descriptor. Holy in that Holy Spirit is God. And Spirit in that what the Spirit's role is doing is filling the life of a believer. So that's why you're going to hear me say either Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit interchangeably. And I think both are okay. And there's a lot more I could say, but going back to the question that's here in Acts, what does this mean? What does the indwelling of the Spirit of God mean for me in my life, mean for this world? Well, the first thing, I believe it means God's favor and that he sees all of us is worthy. What I mean by God's favor is that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God. 
One of the most common roles for the Holy Spirit is that of a helper. And helper, I believe, is kind of an umbrella term for all the other roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us in so many ways. One, the Holy Spirit is our comforter. Whenever life starts going off the rails and we don't know where to turn, the Holy Spirit is there to help us pick up the pieces of our life. The Holy Spirit's also our intercessor. When we don't know what to say, when we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf to the Father. The Holy Spirit is also our convictor. Some of you may hear that and be like, that doesn't sound super favorable. It is favorable. It's very good that the Holy Spirit helps us see what is sin in our lives and helps us repent of those things. The Holy Spirit is also our teacher, teaching us the way of Jesus and how to have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the best friend or companion that you will ever have in your life. Because here's the truth. The relationships that you have in your life are either going to disappoint you, they're not going to be permanent, and they're definitely not always going to be physically present with you. The Holy Spirit will be. The Holy Spirit is always, always with you. Closer than your own skin. The presence of God, the Spirit of God is with us fully, no matter where we are. No matter if we are in prison and there is nothing else around us, the Holy Spirit's there. He is the best friend that we could ask for. And the dwelling of the Spirit, it means God's favor, but it also means that all are worthy. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all people. That's what Peter's going to talk about. We're going to talk about that more next week. In Joel 2, the Spirit of God is poured out on all people. All sons and daughters will prophesy, right? This is not saying that the Spirit of God is going to fall exclusively for men or women or exclusively for Jews and not Gentiles, right? The Holy Spirit is not a respecter of persons. And I'm really happy about that. But this was a challenge. This was a challenge for the early church. Peter had a challenge with this. Paul had to confront Peter to his face about the prejudice that Peter showed to Gentiles. He had to confront him about that. And it took Peter actually seeing the Spirit of God fall on a household, Cornelius' household, for him to say these words. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. His Jewish contemporaries didn't like that in Jerusalem. They're like, how, how could you be doing this? And this question, I think, is one of the most important ones, and we need to ask this of ourselves. Who am I to stand in God's way? Who am I to say, nah, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You can't. God likes people like me, not you. We can't do that. The Holy Spirit is a gift for all people. He gives gifts as he sees fit. And the dwelling of the Holy Spirit shows us that we are worthy. That we are worthy in God's eyes. And I don't want to get too, too much into this because we're going to talk more about it in the sermon coming up. But we oftentimes feel so much shame for the things that we've done in life. We feel like, God, there is no way that God can really love me. And if he loves me, there's no way that God can really like me, right? There's no way God actually wants to be with me or, or be in my presence. No, 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 no. You are so worthy that Jesus died for you. For the whole world, yes, but also specifically for you. Because you have to remember, 
that our God is the one who doesn't just sit with the 99 who are close, but he runs after the one that's away. He leaves the 99 to go do that. God's love for you, God's love for us is what makes us worthy. We are not worthy on our own accord by the things that we can do. We don't deserve anything. We're not entitled to anything. But God's love for us makes us worthy. So much so that whenever we are in Christ, God himself dwells in us. God wouldn't do that if he didn't like you. But he is dwelling in us. That is a level of closeness and intimacy that I don't think we can really fathom. And after we say yes to Jesus, we also like to bear false witness about ourselves. We still do it. Even though we are covered by the blood, we still do it. We still say, I'm a wretched sinner. I'm the worst person ever. I'm a failure. I'm a mistake. Stop it. You are given the Holy Spirit. You are given a new identity. I love Romans 8. Whenever we testify all those false things about us, the Spirit of God is testifying on our behalf saying no. You are a child of God. That is your identity. That is who you are now. You are worthy of love. You are judged worthy of love in spite of your sin. And the Holy Spirit also testifies other places in Scripture all about who we are in Jesus. The Holy Spirit really is God's stamp or seal of our assurance. That in the end we can have confidence in our death and our judgment that we are loved and cherished by God. We can have confidence that the same spirit that lived in Jesus lives in us, and we too will be raised to new life. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it means God's favor and him deeming all of us worthy. And second, it means that we have the power of God inside of us. So last week we talked in Acts 1, Jesus tells his disciples that you will receive power when you receive the Spirit. That's a common association with the Holy Spirit, it's the power of God. Powerful winds, people speaking in tongues, there's fire, earthquakes, miraculous healings, right? Whenever the Spirit of God moves, something powerful happens. And I've heard several people say that the Spirit doesn't work today like he did in the past. I don't believe that. I really don't. We have the same Spirit inside of us. Whenever we have a mountain in our way, we have to realize that dwelling within us is the power that sculpted those mountains, right? I am not going to ever limit the Holy Spirit's power. I believe in miracles. I haven't seen an amputated arm grow back. I haven't physically seen someone be cured of blindness, though I do know people who have said that they have seen the cataracts in people's eyes go away whenever they are prayed over and they are fully healed and can fully see. I believe that stuff happens. I do. And I'm sure a lot of you would love to see something like that. I would love to see something like that. But what if I told you you see miracles all the time? Because I do. What is a miracle? Isn't a miracle God doing something supernaturally to benefit somebody else? And if so, isn't that what the fruit of the Spirit is? Anytime that you see or you are or you're experiencing someone living into the fruit of the Spirit, it is miraculous. Because what's natural for us, what we want to do, is live by the fruits of the flesh. We want to do things that only gratify ourselves. Things that only benefit ourselves. But the fruit of the Spirit is miraculous. 
Whenever somebody chooses to self-sacrificially love somebody else when there is no benefit for themselves and they're only doing it out of sheer love of God and love of neighbor, that is miraculous. Whenever somebody is in the deepest pit of life, the deepest tragedy, the deepest hurt, and yet they can still raise their arms and worship God because of the deep joy that they feel, that's miraculous. Whenever you see a couple who has stayed together for 60 years and it seems like their love has never dipped at all. They are just so in love with each other. They are deeply committed to one another because of that deep faithfulness and loyalty. That is miraculous. Whenever somebody is in your face and talking so bad about you and not giving you any credit that you deserve, but whenever that person does something good, you compliment them and you give them the praise that you feel like they deserve because of the peace that you feel in Jesus and the kindness that you want to show. That is miraculous. And one of the biggest things, I don't know about you guys, there have been times I've gone through sin cycles and it's so frustrating. Like I want to stop sinning, I want to stop sinning. So what I do is I try harder. I try, I try to pull myself up from my bootstraps to, to break this cycle. I don't know if you guys can say the same thing, but for me, that doesn't work. What works is abiding in the Holy Spirit. Instead of striving so much, maybe we should start trying to abide more. Start leaning into dependency on the Holy Spirit, because that's the power of God. So whenever people are able to do that, whenever people like Jesus, like the Son of God did himself, purely in reliance and dependence on the Holy Spirit for everything, maybe that means we should be too. But whenever people can do that through the Holy Spirit, say no to whatever temptation, say no to whatever sin, whatever addiction is consuming them because of the self-control that they now have in the Holy Spirit. That is miraculous. It happens all the time. The Holy Spirit has empowered us to say no to evil and say yes to righteousness, righteousness and say yes to God and goodness. We can't do it by our striving. It's only through the abiding of the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, church, we lack no good thing with the Holy Spirit. There is nothing we lack. We can do so many amazing things because the power of God is inside of us. So what does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit mean? It means the world is supernaturally and forever changed. And it's really interesting how this text that we're reading today how it ends in verse 13. It says, some, however, made fun of them and said they had too much wine. This shows that there's always going to be haters. There's always going to be hecklers. If you're living in the way of Jesus, you're living by the Spirit, this stuff should be happening, right? But they thought all these people were drunk. Why do you think they would make that association? There's a level of exuberance associated with drunkenness. People can often appear to be having a really good time and they lose control of some of their emotions. And Paul in Ephesians, he sort of contrasts drunkenness with being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, don't get drunk on wine, get drunk with the Holy Spirit. Be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's what the early church is experiencing here at Pentecost. You know that feeling Whenever you experience something so good, you're experiencing a kindness that you don't deserve, you just kind of get into this slap-happy state and you can just laugh a lot. 
just like, I can't believe how good this is. I can't believe how good God is. That, that feeling, I think that's what they were experiencing. And maybe some of you experienced that in your baptism. Maybe some of you experienced that whenever God moved powerfully in some way in your life. Maybe you experienced that in worship. That you just feel this overwhelming sense that you have to throw your arms up. Or you have to kneel or you start crying, or you start laughing because you're really meditating about how powerful and how beautiful our God is. And I, and I don't know about you guys, but whenever I'm before the throne of God, I really don't think I'm just going to stand with my arms crossed and be like, yeah, this is all right. <laughs> right? If we're really thinking about the goodness of God and the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, I just feel like whenever I'm before God, I'm going to fall to my knees and just weep. Because God is so good. And I think they were experiencing an intimacy like they had never experienced with the falling of the Holy Spirit in this moment in their life. They were experiencing God in a way that they never had. So yeah, I can imagine to a heckler, seeing the pure joy and exuberance that these disciples were experiencing, I could, I could see how someone might think that looks like drunkenness. Church, we have the greatest gift. We have the single greatest gift ever given in the Holy Spirit. We are given life better than we can imagine. We are shown love that we cannot fully understand. We are granted an identity that will never be stripped away from us. We are given hope that God is going to finish what he has started in us. And through the Holy Spirit, we are given the most enduring, loving companionship conceivable. So may we as a church could you imagine this? May we as a church lean into the power and the dependency of the Holy Spirit in all the things that we do. Could you imagine what would happen if we did that? I, I can't wait to see what would happen. So may we lean into that dependency and watch God work. Today, if you want to receive the Holy Spirit, we can talk with you about doing that. If you want to put Jesus on in baptism, if you want to give your life over to Jesus, if there's anything that the Spirit of God is convicting you in today that you need prayers for or repentance in, don't hesitate. I'm going to encourage all of our shepherds and prayer team to go ahead and make their way around the room. But if you have anything that you would like prayers for, Anything that you feel something stirring in your heart for, please go talk to these people and we would love to pray for you. Lord, we thank you so much for sending the greatest gift in the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the companionship that you have shown us. We're thankful that you demonstrate that you love us so deeply. That you're willing to dwell in us even though we are broken vessels. Even though on our own we are, we are nothing special, yet you still see us all as worthy. We thank you, Jesus, so much for this gift. We thank you for your sacrifice. We pray, Holy Spirit, may you fill up this place. May you fill up our hearts. Convict us. Show us whenever we are not clinging to you, whenever we're not clinging to truth. Give us your eyes. Give us your heart for other people. Because we know that you are the God that pours out on all. 
You are not a respecter of persons. You love all people and wish to dwell in all people. Lord, in this church, may that be so. Dwell in us. Teach us. Guide us. And help us, Lord, lean into dependency on you because we cannot do it ourselves. Help us be dependent on you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.